0: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.
1: I'm Jesse Thorne. Nicole Center is a writer and a director. She has made some truly brilliant films. She also comes from a show business family. Her mom was an Academy Award winning set decorator. Her stepfather was a producer for some of Woody Allen's biggest films. She'd get to meet all these great movie stars and celebrities, sometimes even go on set, too. So, it's an obvious question. All that time around filmmakers, that's what inspired her, right?
0: Um, no. On the film sets that I was on as a little kid and then later as a production assistant, I was nowhere near the director or the action. And I didn't know what was going on. You know, I'd see some the director whisper into an actor's ear, and I couldn't imagine what... Brilliant advice he was giving her. Um, ha ha ha! <laughs> now I know it's like sit to the left.
1: It's bullseye. Coming up, one of my favorite filmmakers, Nicole Hall of Center. In over twenty-five years of making movies, she's shown an incredible talent at making understated, compelling films with strong, fascinating female leads. This time around, though, she thought, "Why not try a movie about a dude?" I mean, somebody's got to make a movie about a dude, right?
0: No, I thought we needed one more, (laughs) because there is such a shortage. I I like men, and um, I know they have feelings, too, and um, have legitimate problems. And I love the characters and the problems they had. So there you go, guys. Thanks, Nicole.
1: Then we'll talk with the creator and showrunner behind the new show, Lodge 49. It's a funny, weird series that is in part about fraternal orders and secret societies and how,
2: well, how they're kind of boring. It's basically, you know, people who by day are, are working, you know, a you know, the daylight grind and at night they can go into the space and be, you know, a knight of the browsing serpent or something like that. And I don't know, I find that very, a very human wish to add some grandeur to your life.
1: Then for our outshot. Michael Jackson sang some of the greatest pop hits of all time. But who was the real genius behind those tracks? I mean, it was Michael Jackson. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. First up, Nicole Center. She's a writer and director. She makes quiet films, usually a little melancholic. Her protagonists are usually women. They're almost always complex, flawed. If you haven't seen her work, it's brilliant. She was profiled in The New Yorker recently, and I think this line sums up her films pretty well. Often, movies are about people confronting extraordinary problems and overcoming them. Hall of Center's films tend to be about people confronting ordinary circumstances and falling short because they're afraid of getting hurt or of getting old or simply of changing. Hall of Center has worked with some brilliant actors as well. Julia Louis-Dreyfus and James Gandolfini in Enough Said. Katherine Keener and Frances McDormand in Friends with Money. Katherine Keener in, like, all of her movies. Hall of Center's latest film was just released on Netflix. It's called The Land of Steady Habits. It's based on the novel by Ted Thompson. And for the first time, her movie centers on a man. His name is Anders. He's a middle-aged, retired finance guy, played by Ben Mendelsohn. Anders is going through kind of a late midlife crisis. He's just left his wife, played by Edie Falco, but they still live in the same Tony community in Connecticut. He's worried about his adult son, he's doing drugs, and he's just having trouble figuring out where he fits in these days. Like in this scene from early on in the film, Anders is getting a drink with his friend Larry, who's also divorced, and Anders is having regrets. His family has moved on a lot easier than he thought they would after he left. And as we're about to hear, Larry is trying to comfort
3: him. I used to have this vision of my life. It was like a web and these threads that connected me, you know? Yeah. And the, the more webs you could have coming from you, then the more important you were. right? Like, so if you're a doctor, you cure a bunch of Patients. Then or a teacher, you've got a million threads, you know? And, and you would be basically irreplaceable, right? Because so many people depended on you, right? You understand yeah, what I'm saying? saying? webs and... Yeah, but it's really not the case. Come on, man. No, it's the web. The web is, is, is remaking itself, revising itself every second of every day. And so if you vanish, then the people that were in your life, they learn to rely on someone else. You know? and and you're gone. And then the web just remakes itself and moves on without you. Nicole
1: Hollisander, I'm so uh, glad to have you back on Bulls. I thank you for coming back on the show.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Um is this movie's kind of about dudes.
0: Yeah. I, I guess they they're male. I mean there's
1: look, there's central female characters in the story as well. But Uh, There's a father and two sons who are really the the heart of this movie, and I wonder if you had to, like, choose that you could make a movie about dudes because, I don't know if you know this, there are a lot of movies about dudes already.
0: No, I thought we needed one more <laughs> because there is such a shortage. I know. A dude's having a midlife crisis, too. <laughs> yeah, right. Finally. How original. Um, but I love the story so much. And the fact that it has dudes was nice. Um, I like men. And um, I know they have feelings, too, and um, have legitimate problems. And I love the characters and the problems they had. So there you go, guys.
1: Was it something where, um, like, I sincerely don't believe you have a special responsibility to chronicle the lives of women?
0: Thank you. Uh, Nor do I.
1: Okay. Uh, so let's stipulate to that. hmm But did you have to think about it for a second and say, okay, this is, this is going to be about dudes. All my, all my other movies were mostly, not exclusively, but mostly about women. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's okay for me to make a movie about dudes. I've made a lot of movies, and it's not my job to fix Hollywood.
0: <laughs> no, nor can I, unfortunately. No, I mean I was
1: wondering why you hadn't so
0: far. <laughs> yeah, I'm try- I, w- I was trying. I gave up. <laughs> I just go where my heart follows. I am not making political statements with my movies, certainly not with this one. You know, in the political climate, that is right now this is not the movie that you know someone should be making yet why not this is a beautiful story i think and um there's room for that no matter the gender
1: how is it different for you to direct you directed a lot of television including some of my favorite television um you directed some of my favorite board to deaths for example which is one of my favorite shows ever
0: the case of the stolen sperm yeah it was a good one (laughs)
1: Um, uh, how is it different for you as someone who has for the most part written the movies that you direct like it's this big intense five year process for you to get a movie into theaters um, because you know you're making small to medium scale movies writing them yourself um, you know presumably working on producing them as well um, and so on and so forth like it's this big deal whereas when you're directing television you're you're just like there for a little while on where everyone else knows each other
0: you know what i mean yeah it can be really uncomfortable like uh being the new kid at school each time
1: but the new kid at school isn't in charge
0: oh yeah that's true that's what's weird about it (laughs) that's true you have to listen to me and you don't know me and i'm on your turf There's only been a couple of times where I felt really uncomfortable, and that played out exactly as you said. Like, it just was kind of torturous, where I think the actors were sick of visiting directors, sick of being directed by people who didn't, you know, aren't there all the time, um, or it's an unhappy set. But generally, I I felt really welcomed, and actors wanted to be directed by me. So, phew.
1: Do you think that your skill set is suited to what a television director does
0: i think a certain kind of television director certainly certain kind of shows i wouldn't know what to do with a three-camera show you know in that like a sitcom or anything um i'd be lost but the shows that i direct feel like little movies Or if they don't, you know, I just direct them as if I was directing a movie. Um, I don't see any difference. Except that I have to please the writer and the producer. And since I work on shows that I really like or love, then I feel honored to do that. So
1: it's good. Does it come easily to you? I mean, as someone who has successfully directed many films where you are, you know, in a film, that director is the be all end all at least you know
0: <laughs> i am <laughs> yeah totally okay yeah for sure um is that wait well your question is the
1: fact that you're that you're oh does it come easily you're to me doing this job and you're doing it for to please someone else ultimately right like you have artistic input as well but you have to do it the way that they like it in mm-hmm. some ways you have to you, know, you have to match the way other people have done it to some extent and so on and so forth
0: yeah in fact i try to You know, I don't feel like I have to reinvent this show with my vision. I feel respectful of what's already come before. And I do want to have my voice in there, a little stamp in there. But, yeah, I want it to be kind of seamless, not notice like, oh, that actor is finally good or that actor is finally bad. People compliment me on my specific episodes. And um, I don't feel really right to take credit. I feel like I can I curse on this show?
1: Well, I will bleep it out.
0: I didn't it up. You know, if I don't screw it up, then I've done my job. You know, I if I did a good job, that's even better. But um, yeah, it's, you know, it's different to want to please somebody else. Yes. But and so it's more like a job in that respect. Like I can't overrule anybody's taste. I can't always rely on my own taste. Um, But so far, people have wanted my taste they've wanted they've trusted me enough mostly to do it and you know it's a it's a great job i make good money um in residuals and meet actors i would never meet or dps that i might want to work with you know it's uh, it's better than sitting you know in my house writing forever
1: do you find yourself when you're working on television doing more asking rather than telling i mean i think i presume that when you're on a movie especially when you've written it and someone says, "I don't. I'm not sure what this is." You're the one who knows.
0: Cause, I should. Right? <laughs> I hope. Yeah. Sometimes I don't. But right on a TV show, um, yeah, I might say, "So, how would you react in this? You know, and what com- What came right before this? Or what about this character? Should I be aware of? Yeah." Um, and then I tell them. <laughs> <laughs> Have to tell at some point.
1: I, I think there are a lot of directors who. You know, one of the reasons that they became directors, other than you know the power. Well, they, yeah, I mean what, it's not not necessarily because they desired power, but because they were comfortable wielding it. Um, like I think that one of the reasons that people with social privilege are disproportionately represented in the ranks of directors is because they don't question. Their, their
0: entitlement, yeah, basically. <laughs> yeah, totally. Is that what you were going to say?
1: Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, I was going to say, yeah, we well, we'll go back to privilege, maybe, but mm-hmm. uh, pr- privilege and entitlement often go hand in hand,
0: mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah.
1: You <laughs> said, so "The straight white dude."
0: <laughs> <laughs> to the straight white woman. <laughs> yeah, <well>. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think. Um, I think that yeah, I didn't. I'm more comfortable directing than I am sitting right here not right now talking to you i'm more nervous right now imagining that this is going to be on the airwaves and the sound of my voice and all that crap um but when i'm directing of course i get nervous and of course i make mistakes but it really feels like i'm in the right place i'm utilizing all of the creativity that i have that i want to express it sounds corny but it's true
1: Did you feel that way when you were young? I mean, you spent time on movie sets as a kid because your stepfather was uh, a legendary producer. Um, Did you look at that and think, this is something I want or something I could do when you were a teenager or whatever?
0: Um, No. On the film sets that I was on as a little kid and then later as a production assistant, I was nowhere near the director or the action. And I didn't know what was going on. You know, I'd see some the director whisper into an actor's ear and I couldn't imagine what brilliant advice he was giving her. Um, Ha ha ha. (laughs) Now I know it's like sit to the left, (laughs) sit up straight. Um, So I didn't know what really directing was or it, it didn't occur to me that I could do that at all.
1: So how did you come to believe that you could? Because I think at some point you have to believe that you could in order to actually do it, right?
0: Yeah. Isn't that crazy? I wonder what made me think I could do it. Um, I directed a short at NYU that um, was probably one of the worst times in my life. I, I mean, making the movie. I was so in over my head that I, I literally wished I would get hit by a car. Um, I was so anxious. I was really like one of the first times I felt serious anxiety and then my producer who was in over his head was throwing up in the bathroom and the movie cost too much money and took forever Um, and then I thought okay I'll be a writer and then I started writing a bunch and went to Columbia grad school for writing (sighs) see but they make you um, uh, direct videos and so when I was directing the videos I thought okay I'm better at this now I I like this And they turned out well, so I thought, okay, I'm going to try directing again.
1: You grew apart in New York and partly in Los Angeles? Yes. And you moved from one to the other when you were like 12? Exactly. I cannot imagine a time in my life when I would less like to have a disjuncture that big.
0: Yeah, that was rough. It was my choice. Although, at the time, I was in with a bunch of mean girls um, when I was 12 in New York City and I seemed to be drawn to mean girls. I was when I was younger. Were you cool? No, I think I guess I
1: think I was a
0: little cool and then they realized how vulnerable I was. Then they realized what a target I was. And um, and so uh, they were funny, you know, mean girls are funny and smart and I was drawn to that and then until they turn on me um. Then they're not, and when I was leaving New York, that was sort of happening, and I was looking forward to getting away from these girls. Um, but moving away from my dad at the time was really hard. He lived in you know near the city, and of course, I you know was drawn to more mean girls, and then I got bullied in my new school, and eventually, I found some real good friends, but yeah, I had long hair down to here. I had zits, you know. I didn't wear a bra. It was like New York in the in the sixties or seven seventies. Um, completely different than the Los Angeles girls, and I tried to be one.
1: What was it like when you got to Los Angeles?
0: I had to take the bus, which was really weird. I was used to the subway, and walk to a bus, which was very strange. And um, I didn't. I felt like I didn't fit in. Um, until I started buying the clothes everybody else was. And then before I knew it, I was. I was. I fit in. I don't know, I just did. And I like. We got to have a dog and um, a completely different lifestyle. You know, New York was pretty rough in the early 70s and 60s, and I was exposed to a lot of stuff. Um, I got, you know, flashed a bunch of times when I was a kid in New York, and then. I came to L.A. and I was on the bus and some guy was doing it. And I'm like, but I'm in L.A. <laughs> <laughs> what, do they follow me here? <laughs> do they say
1: the palm, palm trees? <laughs>
0: exactly. I thought, yeah, I thought only, the perverts only lived in New York. But
1: alas, they're everywhere. That sucks.
0: It does. And all of us, all of my friends, we were all aware of it. So we joke about it and be, try to act tough about it. But it was scarring.
1: Did you have to be tough about stuff in general did you have to have that kind of toughness just walking around that kind of like eyes up you know what i'm talking about
0: absolutely especially in new york i mean i took the subway when i was like eight with my my sister and um so we were hyper aware and vigilant and acted tough until you know we got threatened um and then you know we were puddles of tears um but i I think I still act tough. I think people think I'm tough, and I'm so not tough. I uh, My feelings get hurt just like everyone else's, um, or more, I like to think, or it feels like I do. Um, but that I have a kind of gruff, blunt um, exterior that doesn't really – well, you know, it is a part of me, but so is the other.
1: Do you think that's partly because um – Show business is very unforgiving, and if you are a sensitive person, you'd better have a gruff, blunt exterior, because otherwise the, you're going to die from all the people telling you exactly what's wrong with the things that you created that are most important to you.
0: I know. No, that's where I turn into a puddle of tears. But, um, yeah, this is a very tough, competitive business. I've had, you know, been destroyed emotionally a million times, and um, and I'm one of the lucky ones, so just imagine and also it's just part of my personality i think it's part of my humor is that i can be kind of blunt and outspoken and it makes me seem like i'm a tough girl um and then i find out i'm hurting someone's feelings and i'm not so tough i'm just an idiot
1: is there a time that you can tell me of a time that you regretted something that you were being having uh Tough girl, blunt, outspoken, next about
0: I was probably telling somebody that I didn't know that they had bad breath. <laughs> <laughs> because I'd want someone to tell me. Or, you know, I've accused someone I barely know. Like, did you fart? <laughs> and um, because I just, I like, I like talking about things that we all know about but don't talk about. I have that kind of thrill. And I'm sure I've offended people, especially with the breath thing.
1: I mean that's like a big part of your movies, not bad breath specifically, although there is some chewing sounds talk in in the new movie. There
0: isn't. Bad breath in um Friends with Money. Yeah. <laughs> There's there I go. Yeah.
1: But it's obvious that you get such a kick out of airing something that is supposed to be an intimate secret.
0: Right. Yeah, I mean, so much of Friends with Money was about that for me. It was it was exciting in that way. I like to ask, if I'm sitting with a close friend and they're talking about a good job they just got, I might say, oh, how much are you making? And to see the look on their face, um, like, is it safe to tell you what will you think of me? And I often just tell someone what I'm making because I know they want to know. And I'm either thrilled or ashamed or embarrassed, but that's what it is. Um, Yeah, I I don't think, I think people have too many secrets. People are too ashamed in general, including myself.
1: We'll continue my conversation with Nicole Hall of Center after a quick break. She'll tell me why she isn't really interested in making movies about people who are likable. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for Bullseye and the following message come from Squarespace. If you're ready to start your new business, get your unique domain, and create a beautiful website with help from Squarespace's 24-7 award-winning customer support, head to squarespace.com slash bullseye for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code BULLSEYE to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Think it. Dream it.
2: Make it. With Squarespace. Squarespace. Hi, I'm Daniel Alarcon, host of NPR's Spanish language podcast, Ray Ambulante. We're back with the new season with 36 stories from all over Latin America and the Latino community here in the U.S. From one of the most controversial trials in Puerto Rico's history to the Venezuelan migrant crisis. Listen to Ray Ambulante on
4: the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Hi, I'm Biv, And I'm Teresa.
5: And we host One Bad Mother, a comedy podcast about parenting.
2: Whether you are a parent or just know kids exist in the world, join us each week as we honestly share what it's like to be a parent. And then that's
0: how my day starts. Yeah. Come
2: on. I'm so sick of it.
0: (laughs) When is that going to be over? Like, I want it to stop. (laughs) Teresa, you're hurting my
4: ears. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's it. Yeah, no. I just hate it. Yeah, I don't blame you. It sucks. It really sucks.
2: So
0: join us each week as we judge less, laugh more, and remind you that you are doing a great
2: job. Find us on MaximumFun.org, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Right now I'm talking with Nicole Center. She's a writer and director. Some of her films include Friends with Money and Enough Said. She's also worked on TV shows like Parks and Recreation, Orange is the New Black, and Sex in the City. Her latest project is a film called The Land of Steady Habits. It's out now on Netflix. This movie, uh, uh, The Land of Steady Habits, is about substantially parents' relationships with their children. hmm I found that it terrified me.
0: As it should. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I understand. Terrifies me, too.
1: Was that part of what resonated with you when you read the novel, the kind of terror of not knowing what your children would be and, and not being able to control it?
0: Uh, I think so. Yeah, consciously or unconsciously, that's... I mean, I worry about my 20-year-old twin boys all the time. Um, And it's a real lesson to let them be who they are and to try not to worry and to stay out of their hair. Um, You know, the drug years are really scary. Um, Whether they did drugs or not, you know, you're just in terror. Um, And they lie and do all the normal things. Um, But these characters, I guess, were kind of um, a mother's worst fear. One more than another. But, um, you know, Preston's character is really like he goes to Northwestern and then he lays on the couch. I mean, that's that's a really scary prospect.
1: Let's hear another clip from my guest Nicole Hollisenter's new film, which is called The Land of Steady Habits. Anders is the protagonist of the film. And in this scene, he's hanging out with Charlie, who's the teenage son of some family friends. They're both getting high. And Charlie just talked about how he doesn't understand his dad. Anders starts
3: talking about his own son, Preston. You know why? Because when he was a kid, he had this big floppy bear. It was like a big, saggy, shitty bear. And he carried it everywhere. And I mean everywhere. And he held on to that thing. He held on to that thing way too long, way past the time when anyone was supposed to be hanging on to a bear, you know. So we took it out and, and we hit it. And we pretended that it was lost. Because we were, I don't know, we were worried about him being teased or that he wouldn't grow up or some bullshit. I don't know. Oh God, he was so betrayed. We betrayed him. He was devastated. He was heartbroken. What a stupid... Thing to be a parent
0: it's sad
3: yeah yeah
0: that ted thompson he's a good novelist and ben mendelson good actor
1: we were actually a very good uh writer and director thank you in my opinion <laughs> thanks have you ever retrospectively thought wow i failed my child in a way that i did not realize at the time
0: um, I, mean, sure. I don't think
1: anyone fails their children on purpose.
0: No, of course not. I'm sure. And I'll find out more <laughs> <laughs> as they get older and angrier and we start having therapy sessions together. Um, certainly, I will learn more. And um, I have to accept that. You know, I, I want to be a perfect parent. I never want to hurt my kids. And to find out, you know, you who are supposed to protect your child has hurt, hurt them is just. Um, really horrible feeling but we all make mistakes and that you know i've made some i'm sure
1: do you worry about whether you're doing the right thing as much as the characters in your movies do
0: oh gee um yeah i suppose i i i am aware i worry if i'm doing the right thing yeah right not not as much i mean. You know, the character that Ben Mendelsohn plays, you know, he makes a lot of mistakes. He's not doing the right thing. I'm not drawn to those kind of mistakes, thankfully. I think I have a better head on my shoulders. But that doesn't keep me from, you know, being insecure about how I behaved somewhere, what I said or what I'm saying right now. (laughs) Whose feelings am I going to hurt or whatever. Yeah.
1: Your movies have such... Sympathy for people who are making mistakes? There isn't anybody in your movies who isn't making mistakes for the most part. Mm -hmm. Like, there's no, uh, you know, there's not a lot of Herculeses in your movies.
0: No, there aren't. I can think of Simon McBurney in Friends with Money. He was a pretty good guy and um, being torn apart by his wife who had a lot of problems. But he kind of shows himself, I think, to be a. a, um, well-rounded, healthy person.
1: Are you like constantly making a list in your head of uh, Catherine Keener's and Edie Falco's and James Gandolfini's,
0: Julia Louis Dreyfus? These people
1: yeah. that uh, can do can do jerky, mean little things. And you still just want to give them a hug.
0: Yeah. And a lead in a movie. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's what land the Land of Steady Habits, you know, Ben Mendelsohn plays this kind of somewhat reprehensible person, really selfish, narcissistic, insecure, ashamed, lonely person who makes bad mistakes and... You know, when I was casting the movie or thinking about who I wanted, I felt like he had all of that in his face. He could have all of that in his face. He's such a good actor. And and also it's, you know, sometimes it's the way someone talks or it's literally the shape of their face, you know. Like Catherine, um, I don't know, everything she says and does makes it more interesting to me than most actors. So um,
1: She's really funny. Yeah. I can really nail a joke. She kind of has a little bit of sad eyes.
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: And so everything is colored a little bit by the sad eyes.
0: Which I love. Yeah. You know, I mean, if you cast her in the proper thing, that's fantastic. But that's what makes her deep. And same with Ben. Ben has sad eyes. Look at those eyes. I mean, he, yeah, he just draws you in. And I hope that, you know, people, they don't have to love him or like him. But as long as you're immersed in his growth or his story and entertained by it. Great.
1: I was thinking when I watched the movie Mission Impossible... Yes. ...that Tom Cruise, and I may be about to uh, mess up my chances of ever having time. Tom Cruise, if you're listening to this right now, you're more than welcome to come on this program. I'd be fascinated to talk with you.
0: He's not listening.
1: You don't seem like a real human being. (laughs) Uh, But I know you are. I know you must be, because I believe all people are. Yes. Um, But, like, Tom Cruise in that movie... Like, he's superhuman, right?
0: Uh, you're, I've never and, seen okay, one. Okay, so you, know.
1: as, you should watch it. It's a totally great movie. Yeah. Um, but he's superhuman in it. And he's absolutely credible as superhuman because of his a- astonishing and apparent certitude. Like, the conviction... And he must just be like this because, like, he must know how to enhance it for the screen. But, like, he must have some – this must be a real quality of his.
0: Well, we've seen it, I think, in interviews. Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. When when people have laughed at him for seeming unhinged, it is for that exact same reason, right?
0: The the couch. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And um, that is, like, one quality of movie stardom, which is you can credibly be – Anything. Like, beyond – the world uh-huh. like anything in the world, I feel like the other quality of movie stardom is if you can be a jerk and we <laughs> believe that you are doing your best
3: yeah uh-huh. and like
1: and like you for that
0: right doing your best that's that counts for a lot it does i i i, I don't have any elaboration on that
1: have you ever seen the show "Always Sunny"? In, it's always sunny in Philadelphia. I love that show. So it's yeah, I love it too. I'm amazed that it's still so great, 13 years I in know, or however long they've been making it.
0: I really want to work with Kate Lyn Olson. So she's, bad. She's amazing. She's so she's, she's so
1: brilliant, hilarious in that show. Yeah. And um, I was thinking, like, why do I like these characters who are? monsters in literally every way and idiots they're both idiots and monsters they're not just amoral they're immoral almost always and
0: they think they're terrific people
1: and they think they're terrific people they're completely deluded (laughs) like and i was like okay well number one they're friends and i like things about friends (laughs) and number two they're doing their best
0: right actually they don't think they're good people they know they're bad people but they're doing their best at being themselves. Yeah.
1: Something like that. Getting what they
0: want. No, it's relentlessly funny and they're all you know, reprehensible. Yeah. Love it.
1: Like when I, I remember watching um, Friends with Money,
3: mm-hmm.
1: being mad at every character in the movie. No, <laughs> like
0: Really? Yes. Yeah, so, in, ba- in a bad way.
1: Uh, no, no, no. Not in a bad way. Uh-huh. I actually really like your movies, as I've said a bunch of times so far. <laughs> um, You're one of my all-time faves. Thank you. But like watching and being mad. At at, these jerks. At all these jerks, right? But still really caring about them, wanting happiness for them, Mm -hmm. and like believing in them in a weird way. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And that is not a common thing in film. Maybe you get one person like that in a movie. You know, you get one Katherine Keener. Mm-hmm. You tend to make, com- construct movies out of those people.
0: <laughs> yeah, I guess they're all, you know, people inside of me and my life, you know, people in my life. And it's just not interesting to make easygoing, likable people. Um, I mean, even the dude, you know, easygoing, likable person. But boy, does he up. But he's <laughs> But he's doing his best. <laughs> um yeah, that's just what's interesting to me. Um, I like to see movies about, you know, if it's not going to be conflict like, um, you know, finding the buried treasure, it better be conflict within somebody's soul.
1: Nicole Hall of Center, I'm so grateful to you for coming back on the show and you. uh, for your movies as well. I just admire them so much.
0: Thank you so much. That makes me happy.
1: <laughs> Nicole Hall of Center. One of my all-time faves. The Land of Steady Habits is streaming now on Netflix. You can watch it. And hey, here's a hot tip. If you didn't see enough said, Like, I think it was one of the most lovely and moving and hilarious romantic comedies of the last 10 or 20 years. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you heard about this show, Lodge 49... It's new. It's on AMC, and I am pretty into it. It's about a guy named Sean Dudley, who goes by, appropriately, Dud. He's a 30-something burnout. He lives in Long Beach, where he was born and raised. He used to be a surfer, but he got bit by a snake, literally bit by a snake, and now he can't surf. He hangs out at a donut shop, and if you know a place where he can crash tonight, he's all ears. Anyway, one day he is metal detecting on a beach and he finds a ring and he asks around and it turns out that it belongs to a lodge for this secret society, the Order of the Lynx, sort of like the Freemasons or the Elks. The ring brings him into the lodge and before long, he's a member. He's fascinated by the robes and rituals, charmed and befriended by the members. He gets swept up by the mythology and mystery. Here's what's great about the show, The Order, The Secret Society. It is just a bunch of people. Most of them are about 20, 30 years older than Dud. They rent out their throne room to a bingo club. The plumbing drips a little bit. It's been a very long time since they've had a new member. And when you're watching the show, you're constantly asking yourself, is fate intervening in Dud's life, or is this just luck, happenstance? I talked with Jim Gavin, the show's creator, and Peter Ocko, who is a television veteran who was showrunner and executive producer of Lodge 49. You'll hear from them in a second. But first, let's listen to a little bit from the show's pilot. Dud's truck just ran out of gas, just outside the lodge, coincidentally. And he just found that ring, so he decides to walk across the street and return it. He knocks on the door, and he's greeted by Ernie, played by Brent Jennings, an officer at the lodge. In this scene, Dud asks Ernie about joining up.
4: I hate to admit it, but someone asking to join is a rare event these days. Really? Our membership's been declining for years. Maybe this is a good sign we need to get younger. I'll just need your contact info.
3: Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay.
4: So, um, like, what is it that you guys do here? Community services, recreational activities. Plus, there's a whole philosophical component, alchemical or whatever you want to call it. Oh. But mainly we just get together. Tonight's bunko night. Well, that sounds great. You do understand we may not take you. For all I know, you could be some kind of deadbeat or psycho. Definitely not a psycho.
1: Guys, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have the two of you on the show. Thanks for having us. Thank Thank you. you. Jim, this was a show that you created um, what drew you initially into the world of
2: the of fraternal orders? I've always kind of been obsessed with uh, sort of the history of secret societies and kind of esoterica and all that. Uh, both for its kind of strange, buried histories and systems of belief and ritual and stuff, but mo- mainly for the human element of the type of person who joins these things, particularly in their more modern expression. Um, you know, something like Freemasons or the Elks. Elks are more of a social club than a esoteric., uh, but it's basically you know, people who by day are are working, you know a, you know, the daylight grind, and at night they can go into the space and be you know, a knight of the brazen serpent or something like that. And there's just a sense of uh, I don't know, I find that very a very human wish to add some grandeur to your life, and I think it's also a world that is feels like it's been on its way out for a while. Um, you drive by these places in Southern California, they feel very dusty and moribund and feel like a bit of a relic, um, but they're still open, you know. And our story is basically one of the stories we're telling is, is a possible rebirth of a particular lodge when a young man knocks on the door. Um, so, yeah, I think we we created our own, the ancient and benevolent or the lynx, and it has its own crazy history and mythology It, it is kind of, uh, you know, combines some histories of Freemasonry and is inspired by certain things. But it's its own thing, has its own system of belief and metaphor and stuff. So um, that was its kind of own joy and pleasure. But the real joy and pleasure just watching, uh, yes, uh, Dud knock on the door and meet Ernie.
1: Was the fact that it is in Southern California but not in
2: Los Angeles also important to the two of you? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think for me, that's naturally the environment I write about. You know, I'm Long Beach and Orange County are areas I know very well. My family's there, and I grew up there and all these things. And so for me, it is in the dumbest way possible, which is maybe the best way. So I write what I know and a certain type of people. Um, and I think one thing – about Southern California, the setting is that, and we try to capture this in the show. Is that it's kind of sunbaked, almost oppressive sunlight um, versus the very the interior of the lodge, which is dark and dim and cool, and has the feeling of a retreat from like the daily grind. And I think, for whatever reason, that is that juxtaposition is more drastic in Southern California, in my mind, in some sense. So, um, yeah, so it's it's set there because that's kind of where. Our I know. But we also got go very much into the history of, of Long Beach and aerospace and um, all, all these things. So, yeah, no, like Los Angeles doesn't even register on the minds of our characters at all.
5: Yeah, I, I think, too, it's the kind of place that people have heard of, but they don't know. So you can't shorthand it when you hear it and you can't think you know it already. And And for us, too, there's because of that we uh We talk a lot about the Kingdom of Long Beach, where it is a real place with real people that Jim certainly knows inside and out, but it's also this uh to the idea of being the you know the brazen knight you there's a place where things can happen which aren't necessarily something you'd
2: see in you know straightforward daylight yeah yeah the the light in southern california is is unique and i'm not the first person to note this you know and i i you know i feel it every time i'm gone for a while when we were in atlanta shooting i was gone for probably you know like three months and i just remember just entering you know getting out just stepping out of lax as the light is is it does have this it depends how you're feeling personally it can either be the, the a gift or or like an almost oppressive thing and uh long beach on top of that, I think has an even partic- more particular light that I that I feel, um, and we were able to, I think, capture that in some moments because we do we did shoot there for a couple weeks. Um, yeah.
5: Yeah, I mean, for us, the moment of sort of stepping out of the dark lodge into the light and then seeing it, and it's just too bright, and you have to shut the door and go back. It's it's uh, it, you know it's the experience of being in a hole in the wall bar and coming out. It's 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 not the idyllic you know,
1: paradise-like. It's the opposite. It's this kind of, you know, you'd rather retreat. Yeah. More with Peter Ocko and Jim Gavin after a break. Stick around. Their show, Lodge 49, is set in Long Beach, California. Jim Gavin was born in Long Beach. Coming up, some extremely Long Beach-specific questions. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for Bullseye and the following message come from Starbucks. Introducing new Starbucks Plus Coffee K-Cup Pods, the coffee that keeps up with you. With twice the caffeine compared to one pod of Starbucks K-Cup Coffee, it's an extra boost to help you make the most of your day. Available in Starbucks Blonde, Medium, and Dark Roast K-Cup Pods for the rich taste you love. Look for new Starbucks Plus Coffee where you buy groceries. Hi, this is Peter Sagal. For 20 years, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me has been making fun of the news with comedians and celebrity guests. We got silly limericks. We got terrible impressions. If you think the news is a joke, wait till you hear our show. New podcast
2: episodes are available every Saturday.
0: I'm Allie Gertz, and I'm Julia Prescott, and we're the hosts of Everything's, Everything's Coming Up, up Simpsons. Simpsons. Every episode, we cover a different episode of The Simpsons um, that is a favorite of our special guests. We've had guests that are showrunners and writers and voice actors like Nancy Cartwright. I got a D minus.
2: I passed.
0: And we've also had people that are on the Max Fun Network already.
2: Homer wearing that golf outfit is I so funny. It. And there's when he gets super into golf, <laughs> he's wearing the golf hat in bed.
0: We've had Weird Al Yankovic on the show.
1: I was just uh, struck by how sharp the writing is. I mean, yeah. that's no surprise because it's The Simpsons, but, I mean, like, y- you can't say that about a lot, lot of, a lot of TV shows, particularly ones that at that point had been on the air for
0: 14 years. Find us on MaximumFun.org, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: All right. Smell you later.
1: You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Right now I'm talking with Jim Gavin and Peter Acko. Jim created the new TV show Lodge 49. It's a little tough to say what it's about, but some of the themes include secret societies, quarter-life crises, and the stagnating aerospace economy in Long Beach, California. Peter Akko is a writer, executive producer, and showrunner on Lodge 49. It seems to me like, and tell me what you think of this assertion, there is some kind of parallel between the way that Dud's combination of optimism and naivete when he looks upon the world um, kind of gives, gives the story a, a way to like look at normal things in a new way. that parallels the ways that the kind of metaphors of the mysticism of these fraternal orders are a way of looking at the world through new eyes
5: I, if I, I would say as an answer to that the the one index card we had in our writers room above everything else was the idea of alchemy which is can you get something from nothing and I think dud sort of embodies that
2: you know yes yeah. and I think the the central metaphor for the links order is vision and, and seeing and how like the the magnum opus of of alchemy is can there are many different ideas of what it actually means but I think in our land, it kind of just means seeing, so seeing the, having an experience of the unseen, or seeing the world in a new way where it feels new. And I think, on some level, Dud does, does that naturally. He just sees things at a different angle uh, from everybody else, which you know causes um, no shortage of uh, problems for him. And it and it can's often delusional, but I think he's someone who. The delusion might actually save him at different points in his life as, as far in, in in addition to causing him great a lot of grief. There is a mentorship relationship
1: at the center of this show between Dud and an older guy named Ernie who is uh, both the guy who happens to be inside <laughs> when he knocks on the door yeah. and a guy who is uh, 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 next in line to become the boss of the lodge. Yeah. And Ernie is a pretty regular dude, a plumbing parts salesman, a salesman to plumbers. Yeah. That is. And he's African American and he's like maybe like 60ish, something mm-hmm. like that. Um in a world where people want 60-year-old dudes to be <laughs> like ma- either magical or invisible. <laughs> yeah. And especially 6 year old African-American guys, like, either they wanted to be Samuel L. Jackson or Morgan Freeman, yeah. you know, like, guys who have more charisma than God. I mean, Morgan yeah. Freeman often <laughs> plays God. Um, but, like, the most charismatic, coolest, most uh, remarkable human beings on Earth or just completely unseen. Right? Um, how do you, like, how do you fill that role? Like, how do you decide—
2: yeah, I I mean the character is you know a composite of people in my life and um, in particular a uh, a basketball coach I had in high school and who I was very close with and when my my basketball career ended and I I was in a moment of of difficult moment in my life someone basically helped me in a way that I think was crucial. That's it's always stayed with me. Can you, uh, can you tell me what that was? Uh, just like my family was – my dad lost his job and we were, everything was falling apart. And he basically – I went and coached with him and I just had a purpose. Um, and from – when I'm looking back now with a little bit of – I could see how screwed up his life was. And just because he was making all these dumb decisions in his life doesn't mean he wasn't doing this amazing thing for other people, you know, and – um but anyway so but it is you know it's as a character's imagine he's he's very much comes out of a, a long beach world and upbringing in a particular part of long beach um but that's the character but it's played by Brent Jennings who when we saw him he's a guy who I think a lot of people recognize from as a character actor and stuff but he embodied that kind of everyman Leopold Bloom um a fully just he just has these nooks and crannies and odd guys it, you know so
5: he's surprising in a lot of ways yeah and, and you, you look at him and you you think you know him and then he'll say something that just you realize there's many more dimensions to this guy and that's Ernie you
2: know yeah so I think yeah it, he's a guy who's still he's you find out you know he's finding life doesn't just he's at its point you never think you're going to be that old but he still has this fight ahead of him like he still has to live this life and um, I know. So I, he, he, you know, he and and Wyatt um, really do kind of they just the way he embodied those characters is, is you know a joy to watch. Yeah, and know. to be fair, I mean, next
5: season he does get a magical staff that summons lightning. So
1: do, <laughs> awesome.
5: Yeah, I mean, we're we're heading that direction. <laughs> Did yeah. you
1: screen test
5: every <laughs> actor with a staff? Yeah, yeah. Well, we knew it was we we wanted to hold off for one season, but yeah, you're right, yeah, it's yeah. coming.
1: Let's hear a scene with Ernie played by Brent Jennings. Um, he goes to a dispensary, and the dispensary is owned by a character named Blaze, uh, subtly named Blaze. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Blaze is played by uh, David Piscuese, who's a sort of legendary Chicago improv guy. and is great in the show. And he is a guy who—he's um, probably the guy who's most invested in the mystical world of yeah. the Lodge. Yeah.
5: I have your Earth, Wind, and Fire kit ready to go. Now, everything you need is right in there including instructions mm-hmm. once it's mixed together
4: just rub it into his fur or wherever there's irritation thank you and fernando thanks you see you at the tavern tonight no after work i'm playing nine with larry and um i've got other stuff hot date what no are you okay you look stressed i'm not sleeping it's the crows in my neighborhood they wake me up every morning they're everywhere
5: Signs and symbols, Ernie. The augury of birds, man. Mm. Come on, Paracelsus says this sort of thing usually foretells doom.
4: Fantastic.
5: I mean, that's just an FYI.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, It seems to me like maybe the thing that I respond to the most in Lodge 49 is simply that i would like to watch television shows that aspire to art um like i like artfulness and there are so few that do not signpost their artfulness through uh depicting unpleasantness mm-hmm. and there are shows yeah. like i love mad men too Yeah. Don't get me wrong. And we do. Yeah, absolutely. Like don't It's the greatest. It's a totally (laughs) amazing television program that totally blew my mind. I watch every episode. It's great. But at some point, like I would like I I'm so excited to get to watch a TV show that is artful, aspires to be artful. It's like intentionally artful, um, but also isn't curdled, isn't about what's awful about the world. (laughs)
2: Yeah, I mean I I, I think any – it's kind of dishonest either way, like a, a straight – something that's so just all jokes and rah-rah doesn't feel true and something that is so – and this is what I feel mostly intelligent, so battering and bleak um, that on some level is, is a pretense in its own way and that – the way i understand life is um and during some of my darkest moments i've i've had some of my biggest laughs and some of my most happy moments uh, there's a shadow of melancholy you know and um it is a challenge to, to depict that but I, I think that's where you know we we ha- we love it you know that um we can move through uh different moods in a way um and not rely you know on uh you know a dead body on the floor although you know we'll get there eventually but yeah. um, uh you know yeah so it, it's I, I don't i don't know i would wouldn't say i'm an artist or anything or you know what but collaboratively i think there's a level of uh trust in what we're trying to do and the detail in it that um i, I don't know the word i like is offhand like i think some of our biggest moves are kind of offhand, you know, it, I, hopefully it's a show that rewards a second viewing. Cause you'll see, you'll see things in the background and setups and stuff that you may have missed the first time. Signs uh, and augers. Yeah, yeah. 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 No, I,
5: it's, and it's thrilling to be mistaken for art. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I, and I, and I think for us, um, you know, the guiding light is always what, what makes us happy, like what makes us giggle um, and letting the characters kind of lead instead of feeling like we're trying yeah. to fill a formula. And the
2: other thing is that between, you know, like Brent, um, Wyatt, uh, Sonya Cassidy, who plays Liz, who's a huge figure on her show, um, uh, David, Eric and Linda are kind of really they all have a unique kind of. They do have a comic sensibility, um, even though they've all done many different types of things. Um, but the, the, their sensibility is particular to the character in a way. Um, and that's just really fun to write write to, you know. So,
1: Okay, Jim, you are in part from Long Beach. I think you spend a lot of time in, in Orange, California. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have uh, both the producer of this show, Kevin, and our production fellow, Chewie, are – from Long Beach and have lived in Long Beach. Okay, um, they're both graduates of CSU Long Beach. Okay, as is my sister. Okay, so congratulations to all <laughs> the congratulations to all the Waves. Is that what it is? Forty is? Forty 49ers, Okay, um, that was a trick question, right there. <laughs> <laughs> well done, Jim. Uh, here's your Long Beach questions. This is like a lightning round. Where okay. in Long Beach did you have your first drink?
2: Uh, Lo- in Long Beach would be Murphy's, I think. On, i'm not proud of this on second street i knew um a bar guy bartender there andy horn if you're listening
1: i feel like you, you were you were 10 yeah you having described already a bar does just a design for a bar that moved you to tears <laughs> yeah. that was like you calling yourself out yeah, yes <laughs> yeah. enjoy your drink. okay uh what's the best place for tacos um, and be aware that I'm worried. I don't know for sure, but I'm worried this is a test of some kind.
2: Okay. Um, I can't say it's the best. My favorite place to get a taco is Coco Reno's. Um, one, because I used to live near it, and it's just a very cozy place. And you can take it into the order into the bar next door. Um, and they, 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 I, they do again. You're calling yeah. yourself after. Yeah. So um, I'm. It's, I'm a little out of. My sister lives in Long Beach, or one of my sisters, and she's probably more up on the contemporary taco uh, scene. Um, my notes here say that if you had said "Holy
1: mole that I should end the interview because you're a fraud.
2: <laughs> okay, great.
1: So you're well safe done. from yeah. that. Do you own a T-shirt from Joe Josts? <laughs>
2: Actually, I do, as of very recently, um, uh, <laughs> one of our...
1: It was our producer, Kevin, is so excited to talk about this T-shirt. He tried to explain it yeah, to me. No, it
2: was a, it was a gift. Uh, <laughs> for, uh, one of our uh, lovely editors, Sheridan, who was from Long Beach, graduate of Long Beach Poly, uh, she gave me a JoJo shirt. So, yes jim peter thank you so much for taking this time to be on bullseye
1: it was really great to get to talk to you about your wonderful show awesome. thank you it was fun thanks dude jim gavin and peter akko the creator and showrunner of amc's lodge 49 respectively lodge 49 is in the middle of its debut season right now you can watch a new episode every monday at 10 p.m nine central And if you get AMC, you can also watch the whole first season on the AMC website. I've really been enjoying watching it. Give it a look. Every week on Bullseye, we like to leave you with a culture tip before we go. It's called The Outshot. Maybe because Michael Jackson always seemed like a child. It's easy to dismiss his artistry. Not the large-scale impact that he had. You can't deny his stardom. In contrast to, say, Prince, it's easy to think of Michael as a naive. MJ wasn't a one-man band. He didn't write some of his greatest tracks. One time he brought a chimp to the Grammys. It's easy to think of Michael as an incredible instrument that was being played by others. By his dad, by Quincy Jones, whoever. I I had a Michael Jackson doll as a kid, and I thought of him that way. And yeah, Michael wasn't Prince. He didn't write a lot of his songs, and he didn't play the instruments, and he never had that kind of white-knuckle control over his art. But for all those things that he wasn't, there is one thing that Michael Jackson still was. A genius.
0: We're going to be starting now, maybe. But
3: don't stop till you get enough. Don't stop till you get enough. One, two,
1: this is the home demo of Don't Stop Till You Get Enough, the single that pushed Michael to solo stardom. He's 19 or 20 here. His brother Randy's playing the piano. A few of his brothers and sisters are helping with percussion and so forth, banging on Coke bottles. Michael wrote this song. It's his first R&B number one. There's no strings, a rough mix, and there is a genuine genius on the vocals. wasn't much of an instrumentalist. I mean, he could bang out a song on a piano if he needed to. He was a singer and a dancer, and he was transcendently brilliant at those things. Justin Timberlake and Usher and Bruno Mars can all sing and dance. They are all brilliant, but they are all tribute acts when you put them next to Michael. Jackson's greatest albums were polished to an almost blinding sheen. But listen to him sing She's Out of My Life, accompanied by a guitar. Just a guitar. She's out of my
3: life She's out of my life I don't know whether don't know whether to live or die and it cuts like a knife she's
1: by the time this song made it to off the wall it had strings in the whole 9 yards i mean if slash had been famous in 1979 they might have brought him in to throw a solo on there so it could make rock radio but what makes it magic is Michael's voice.
3: Damn the indecision and cursed pride The love I care for her Like deep inside And it cuts like a knife She's dies
1: Do the verses, then then I'll do the choruses. One, two, three, four. I mean, I can't sit here and tell you that Quincy Jones wasn't or isn't a brilliant arranger, or that Rod Temperton didn't know how to write a hit song, or that Rodney Jerkins or Dark Child or Teddy Riley couldn't make a track jam. But listen to the demo for Beat It. Every track is Michael. And then tell me who the genius was in that room. That's all for this week's Bullseye. Bullseye is recorded at MaximumFun.org headquarters overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where a kind listener just sent us a record album. It's by Monk Higgins. It's called MacArthur Park. I I guess he probably plays the song MacArthur Park, but he is a saxophonist, and there is a gorgeous picture of him in a bright blue suit on a bright blue boat playing the saxophone in the middle of MacArthur Park Lake. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He's the one who put that record on a chair sitting directly across from me. He had help from Casey O'Brien. Our production fellows at MaximumFun.org are Jesus Ambrosio and Shayna Deloria. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. Our interstitial music was recorded by DJW, a.k.a. Dan Wally. Our thanks to him for sharing it with us. Our theme song is a tune by the Go Team called Huddle Formation. Our thanks to them and their label Memphis Industries Records for letting us use it. I know I say that every week, but I'm genuinely very grateful to the Go Team who personally approved that because I love that song. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, all of them are free at MaximumFun.org. Uh, we're also on Facebook, on Twitter, on YouTube. You can find all the interviews and segments from this week's show on YouTube if you type in Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. Uh, you can find them on Facebook, like us there, etc., etc. And I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off.
0: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.